You're listening to Policy Currents, a weekly podcast from the RAND Corporation. I'm Deanna Lee. And I'm Evan Banks. Every Friday, we bring you new insights from RAND's latest research and commentary. It's April 28th. Recent fighting in Sudan has left hundreds dead and millions more trapped without food, water, or electricity. Thousands of residents and foreigners have fled the country. While a temporary ceasefire agreement was renewed this week, there have been reports of continued violence. It's unclear what will happen next. But according to Rand's Jacqueline Burns, a former advisor to the U.S. Special Envoy for Sudan and South Sudan, it will be a long path toward peace. Burns wrote in the New York Times this week about what led to the unrest. While rising tensions between two rival generals were certainly a factor, the problems in Sudan stretch back much further, she says. Over the last decade, the U.S., NATO, the European Union, and other interveners have focused on brokering peace deals in Sudan that split power between armed groups. In other words, the international community's urgent efforts to stop the bloodshed have largely revolved around engaging the people with the guns, which might sound perfectly reasonable, but according to Burns, this approach is misguided. Women, internally displaced persons, and anyone who is not part of a rebel movement are often excluded from the process. What's more, Burns says, the armed groups and dictatorial regimes know that as long as they are participating in a peace process, international pressures will eventually, and often quickly, fade. And there are typically very few effective mechanisms to hold them to a signed agreement. Burns says she saw this time and again in both Sudan and South Sudan, where leaders of armed groups she dealt with were more interested in watching televised soccer matches by the hotel pool and scheduling meetings for their own gain, rather than discussing the violence affecting their people. That's why this approach to conflict resolution rarely leads to sustainable peace. It legitimizes armed groups as the only valid power brokers, while asking Sudanese citizens to quietly wait their turn. Often, that turn never comes, Byrne says. Quote, If the international community continues to prioritize the voices of the armed and corrupt over those seeking real political reform and representation, we can expect nothing less than the continued cycle of violence and human suffering witnessed over the past week in Sudan. Excessive alcohol use continues to be one of America's most serious drug problems, accounting for one in eight deaths among people ages 20 to 64. Not only this, but excessive drinking creates massive economic costs because of its effects on workplace productivity, healthcare costs, and crime. And with drinking in the U.S. spiking during the pandemic, Americans' relationship to alcohol has become a topic of renewed interest. In South Dakota, officials are trying to address the problem of excessive drinking through a program called 24-7 Sobriety. This program focuses on people arrested multiple times for drunken driving or other offenses. 
24-7 sobriety requires participants to abstain from drinking and take frequent alcohol tests. The program is very transparent. Those who violate the rules are subject to a swift and certain sanction. Participants whose blood alcohol level is above 0.00 are taken to jail, usually for a night or two. A RAND study published earlier this year showed that this program is making a difference. Participants who had been arrested for drunken driving had about a 50% lower risk of dying, for any reason. Additionally, past RAND studies have demonstrated other benefits to the 24-7 sobriety program. For example, participants had a lower probability of being arrested again during the first year after entering the program. And after counties adopted 24-7 sobriety, the number of arrests for domestic violence and repeat drunken driving in those counties decreased. The economic and technological rivalry between the U.S. and China continues to intensify. To help Washington gain an edge, Rand's Barry Pavel and Daniel Eagle recommend establishing a civilian equivalent to the Joint Chiefs of Staff. The Joint Chiefs of Staff was formalized in 1947, and over the next four decades, it would function as a sort of corporate advisory board in advising the president on military matters and provide, in President Harry Truman's words, coordination and unified command to prevent future aggression against world peace. The civilian equivalent of such a body could be modeled after this vision of a central command. It would be, in essence, a new economic Joint Chiefs of Staff, including at least the Secretaries of Commerce, State, and Treasury. It would be focused exclusively on economic competition, providing support for the National Economic Council, which would retain its broader mandate for U.S. and global economic policy. International engagement would also be a critical element of this new body, as the U.S. and its allies may need to expand their cooperation around the use of economic and technology tools. Pavel and Eagle sum it up this way. An economic joint chiefs of staff could help ensure that geopolitical outcomes are, quote, more favorable for the American way of life and less so for the authoritarians. Over the last year, North Korea has ramped up the frequency and intensity of its missile launches and other provocations. Leader Kim Jong-un also announced plans for an exponential increase in nuclear weapons. And Pyongyang is increasing the diversification of its arsenal to include a wide array of missiles and other weapons. These range from a new liquid-fuel intercontinental ballistic missile and long-range cruise missiles to a newly introduced underwater nuclear drone. All this raises an important question. Why is Kim Jong-un making such excessive investments in his nuclear and weapons programs and dramatically showing off his country's military capabilities, even though the U.S. and South Korea have no intention of invading North Korea? Rand's Bruce Bennett explains that Kim tells his people that this nuclear buildup is necessary for the country's defense. Meanwhile, many North Koreans are suffering without basic necessities, including food and electrical power. But the real reason for Kim's hyped-up threats is likely concern for his own survival and continued control of North Korea. 
Bennett says, quote, While it's impossible to divine Kim's exact motivations, available evidence suggests he is a paranoid ruler who cares less for his country than for his own life and power. Critical minerals, such as lithium, titanium, and nickel, are in extremely high demand. Not only are they widely used in the aerospace and defense industries, but they're also essential for clean energy technologies. Currently, often illiquid and poorly governed markets affect both prices and availability of critical minerals. This raises questions about securing access to them in the future. And, as accessing these raw materials becomes increasingly difficult and costly, U.S. national security needs could end up in competition with climate security needs. That's according to Rands Fabian Villalobos and Morgan Bazilian of the Colorado School of Mines. Here's an example. Nickel is among the six critical minerals used in the lithium-ion batteries that power electric vehicles. It's also crucial for military applications like jet turbine engines. Imagine a scenario in which nickel becomes prohibitively costly or difficult to acquire. To avoid this, the U.S. and private industry will have to work toward a few key goals. Securing access to the supply of critical minerals, increasing global and domestic production capacity, and diversifying supply chains both upstream and downstream. Failure to achieve these goals could put climate mitigation strategies and U.S. military readiness at risk. That's it for today's episode. Thanks for listening. You can learn more about the topics we discussed in the show notes at rand.org slash podcast. We're off next week, but we'll be back in your feed on May 12th, when we'll provide a deep dive on the upcoming expiration of the COVID-19 public health emergency. RAND is a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision-making through research and analysis.